Welcome to Women on the Verge of a Financial Breakthrough, a podcast where we're figuring out finance one dumb question at a time. I'm the dummy, Caitlin Meredith, a coach and mediator based in the Bay Area, and... I'm Sarah Glacus. I'm an investor, advisor, and founder of Black Barn Financial and the Austin Women's Investing Group, which can be found on Meetup and Facebook. Before we start, do you know a woman who might be on the verge of a financial breakthrough? Will you text her a link to our show and maybe two other friends while you're at it? Also, please, if you can, leave us a review. This helps other women on the verge find us. And we read them and they make us happy cry. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about my rage and anger at Sarah for preventing me from becoming a millionaire or the richest woman in all the lands. Oh, I can't wait. Do you not want to know how you've done this? Is it because we're in a bear market and I told you to buy and all of your stocks are down? <laughs> that that I'm adding that to the list. But specifically, OK, I have to bring up a screenshot. On November 16th, 2020, I wrote you a text. Hey, Airbnb just emailed me that I'm eligible to buy shares through a directed share program when they go public. Minimum $300. More info coming out. Dumb, risky idea or my invitation to become a millionaire S. What do you think your response was? Um, I think my response was probably something like, do you have a few extra hundred or a few extra thousand dollars to throw at it? Then go for it. And why Why was that your response? You're right. You said, well, <laughs> yes. it, you said it a little bit more briefly. You said, and I say, quote, unquote, yes to Airbnb stock. <laughs> um, and then I said, so should I try to buy max number of allowable shares? The max allowed is 275, which they're currently valuing at between 12,100 and 13,000 or 50 shares for 2200 to 2500 somewhere in between. For the record, I don't have $12,000. <laughs> but if this will make me rich, I'll figure it out. <laughs> OK, so hold on. Let me get this straight. You didn't have any money, but you wanted to know how much you could afford to put into the Airbnb IPO. I had some money. I didn't have enough to max out what we were allowed. So what happened is, listeners, is I was a very old time Airbnb host. So I started, I don't know, in 2012. I don't even remember when the company started, but early on. And so I was offered as an early host the option to buy shares of Airbnb stock before they went public, right? Is that mm -hmm. how I say it, Sarah? Yes. And the idea being that I could buy it at the price that the market set it at before it was available to the rest of the world. And the case that you hope for is that it skyrockets once it hits the market. Right. You were offered the ability to buy it at the IPO price, which is the first price that it's set at. And then once you're able to buy and sell shares on the stock exchange, then the price just becomes whatever someone will pay you for it. And oftentimes, after an IPO, once the shares start trading on the secondary market, the price often goes up, but not always. Okay. Airbnb was a private company. They just had a boss 
and a CEO, CFO, whatever, doing their business, making their money, but they wanted to expand, so they needed more money injected into their business, and they wanted to make more money. And so they started selling shares so that other people could buy into their company, thus giving them a ton of cash. And then how does this work? Oftentimes, a company will go public in order to get outside investors to put more money into the company. So they say, okay, if you give us um, $50 billion, we'll give you this number of shares at this price. And then if we're a publicly traded company, you can either hold on to those shares, you can turn around and flip them to someone else. We don't really care as long as you give us the $50 billion, we give you the shares, and then you can do whatever you want after that. Okay. And there's some process in which someone determines what a fair price for one of the shares would be. Exactly. And in this case, it was $68 per share. Ooh. Oh, I broke that news. Yes, what, sorry, what, that well, was I, in my sequence. Oh, I don't remember. I'm, I'm excited okay, to see what so happened. <laughs> so on December 9th, the night before their public offering, I got an email saying, please be advised that Airbnb's initial public offering has priced at $68 per share and is now effective. And I essentially had 24 hours to decide how many of those shares, think with a maximum of 300 shares that I mm. could buy, mm -hmm. to buy. And so the question then, I'm sure there was, this is not in our text exchange, so it had to be a frantic phone call, what the fuck do I do? Mm. Like it's priced at 68, so they think it's a really valuable company, right? So then I should borrow any amount of money I can to get as many shares as possible. And you were like, uh, no, do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> do not do that. How much can you comfortably afford? So the next day, December 10th, you texted me easy money with a gif of someone with a bunch of hundred dollar bills throwing them in the air yes and i was like am i already rich and you sent me a screenshot that showed the shares at 144 dollars and 71 cents at which point i wanted to kill you because <laughs> what the fuck i could have made so much more money if i had borrowed all that money from all my friends and neighbors yeah so i said i guess i'm not rich rich light and you said not quite rich enough to worry about the biden tax plan yet so i was like phew so i then started reading all the headlines of other Airbnb hosts like me that had borrowed money, used all of their life savings, and had doubled their money overnight. Because yeah. isn't that what it is? Like 68 to whatever that was. Yeah. So 70 to 140. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a double. And I was like, what the fuck? I'm here with conservative Sarah who's like, just do the minimum of what you can afford. I'm like, I could be riding around in a Corvette right now if it wasn't for Sarah the downer. And so I've been harboring this rage ever since. So what I did end up doing is I invested, where did I put it? I think I did 2,500. That was the amount, I bought 38 shares. And I decided that was the amount that I could live with. You know, I didn't borrow money. 
I, you know, spent more on mm. these stocks than I would have on anything else. Yeah. But it was around 2,500. I found the text. I now own 38 shares of Airbnb, my first non-index fund investment. Why 38? You said I should do between 25 and 50. I couldn't afford 50, so decided to go midway and landed on 38. And I can't read the rest of the text, but 38 was when I had my daughter. So I decided it was a, a valuable number. So I did the 38, which ended up being about $2,500, did the conservative thing. The next day in the news, doubles. And I think, oh my God, if I had done 10,000, I would have I would have 20,000 now, oh, Sarah. Heartbreaker, Here's, idiot. <laughs> idiot but here's the problem i wouldn't have taken the money out right because i would have been so excited oh my god it just doubled like let's just see when it triples let it ride and it baby. quadruples yeah like i'm going all the way to a cool mill and then i'll take some out so i got my first statement and or this couldn't have been my first but one of the ones in march 31st 2021 so this is a few months later three months later Total value of your account. I put 2,500 in. I then had 7,141. What was my return? 171%. I was flying high, Sarah. And I could have uh. been so much higher. So if I had put the full 10 grand in, how much would I have at that point? 27,000. Okay. I would have put 10,000 in and had 20,000. Okay. Now, if I had called you on that day or frantically texted me like, holy shit, it's worth 27 grand now, what would you have told me to do? I don't know. I probably would have asked when you needed the money. If you sell, are you ready to pay the capital gains, but the difference between what you bought it for and the difference between what you sold it for? Okay. So you could so factor that into the cost of selling. Okay. I don't think there's any way I would have sold that day because it. it was all good news. It was yeah. going up and going up and everybody was so proud of themselves. And also I was feeling a little smug because everybody that I told that I had had the first bite at the apple of getting it before the IPO, they're like, oh God, I wish I had had that. So I was like, look at me, I'm ahead of the game. So I've been like holding this grudge for you know now years because like what could have been <laughs> what would have happened my one chance at an individual stock and i'm stuck i'm hitched my wagon to this woman that only talks about index funds oh. wouldn't let me beg borrow and steal to get the extra money to go big on it well so my most recent one do you know what happened to my twenty five hundred dollars it's now three thousand nine hundred dollars Oh, so I haven't lost anything, but I have not all the heyday of those headlines of making my millions is actually not happening. And yeah. if I had begged, borrowed and stolen to get that 10,000, so which would have been like 7,500 in addition to the 2,500, I wouldn't have very much to show for it. No, and like, I would still... still owe that money back. Right. And now I'm back on planet Earth with my $4,000, which is like nice. It's more than $2,500, yeah. but not as much as the heyday. And the key here is that I would have never known the day to sell the stock. Yeah. I wouldn't have known what day to take my winnings and leave the casino 
because it had been the best that it could be. And now maybe it'll go up slowly over time, who knows, but as we've seen with all these other countries. So it made me curious because I have so much envy of people that buy individual stocks. And here we are doing a podcast telling people to never do that. Now, your message has always been, do index fund. All the money that you need for retirement needs to be in the safe, aggressive safe index funds, like aggressive in that they can be, you know, only stocks, you know, or 90% stocks with only 10% bonds. But like index, do not put your eggs in one basket unless you never need to see that money ever again. Do I have that right? Yes, that's usually right. Sometimes people in certain industries or who work for certain companies end up with a concentrated stock position and in individual stocks or kind of like you did take a flyer on one or two individual stocks. But when I'm listening to your story, like this is highlighting the risk of doing that. It's super important that you realize that in addition to an individual stock being a stock in the category of stocks, which is relatively risky, that you're also kind of adding on additional risk on top of it. It's the risk that that company won't do very well or won't do very well for some period of time. And maybe you don't want to or can't wait for it to come back. And it ruins relationships, people, because I've been so angry at Sarah, but now I also have to be thankful about her wise <laughs> advice. And that's a complicated relationship where she prevented me from being a millionaire. I mean, at least a 10,000 error. But at the same time, that takes into account that I would have pulled the plug and not been totally seduced by the high flying stock and been like, nope, this is good enough. I'm pulling right now. And there's no way I would have ever gotten there on my own. And as we keep saying on this podcast, by the time I know something is bad, it is too late to do anything about it. <laughs> and so I'm left with an impossible situation. But it reminded me of this other thing that happened at the same time, which was I had a new puppy. I brought him to doggy daycare. And the woman there was like, I just bought a bunch of Carnival Cruise stocks. And I was like, what the fuck? Why would you do that? It was the high, you know, think April, June, April, May 2020. Like, are you kid? Have you not seen the news? I think people were still stuck out at sea on these boats. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. And she had had a friend that gave her a tip, like, get in now. They're really low. So, Sarah, will you tell me what the price of a Carnival Cruise, like, I don't know what the umbrella company is, but like, Carnival Cruise stock would have been, let's do like January 2020. Okay, so January 27, 2020, the price closed at $43.53 a share. Let's go April, mid-April 2020. Oh, yikes. Well, let's say April 13th, 2020, it had fallen to $12.56. Okay, so let's say theoretically this was the time she was buying because like buy low, right? Right. Sure. What is it today? $9. Oh Even. my God. Today it's $9. Yeah. It had gone up to $30.54 May 
by May 31st, 2021. But it still hasn't recovered to pre-pandemic levels. And if she bought at 1256 or thereabouts, she would she lost money on those stocks if she still has them. If she still has them, yes. I mean, I know this is all theoretical. Like at what what day would she have woken up on that upswing to be like, ooh, I'm done, like cash out now. And if she didn't, because like me, she just thought it would always be good news or she forgot about it entirely, she's now lost whatever money she invested in it, not all of it. Right. I don't feel good for her. I was so envious, though. I thought it was such a brilliant strategy. Like, God, there are clever people in this world who see a market opportunity, you know, assume that it's just a temporary blip. And I think the pandemic presented so many opportunities for dum-dums like me to be like, ooh, Peloton. Everybody's talking about Peloton. So let's look at Peloton. Like, would that have been a good, because they're tanking right now, right? All right, so I've got their five-year chart up. Let's start before the pandemic. Let's do January 2020. Were they public then? Yes. Okay. Okay, so let's say January 27, 2020. They were at $32.36. Okay, so, you know, respectable. I don't know anything about how big or small stock numbers should be prices, but... Like an amount, you wouldn't just buy hundreds of those. Like, okay, let's do June of 2021. Okay, by June of 2021, it had kind of gone up and then come back down. But on June 28th, 2021, it was at $121.60. So like insane. I mean, I myself am responsible for four people buying Pelotons and I don't even have one. (laughs) I know. I think you're responsible for me getting my Peloton, which I love, by the way. It was like the name. So I then was so envious. Who bought those stocks? It was genius. Here I'm like an idiot just telling people to buy the actual bike. I should have been buying the stocks because it's so like they're the kings of the world. Well, what's the stock today? $9.39. Really? It's that bad? It's the same as Carnival Cruises? <laughs> yes, that's, that's just a coincidence. Fascinating. Yeah. So this is just the like after school special version of why buying individual stocks is so dangerous that I need to be reminded of at least once a year. Because I've even had a success story. Like I haven't lost money yet on my Airbnb. But the fact that the success story is that I haven't lost money on my individual stocks talks about the risk. Unless you go into it saying either A, this is money I don't ever need to see again. B, I'm going to wait till it increases 20% and then I'm pulling out. Like I've defined what profit I'm going to make from this and I'm getting out no matter what. Sort of like leaving the casino when you're on a winning streak. I assume it's like that. That counteracting against the psychological tendency we have to just think like good news means more good news is happening when it comes to stocks. To actually do well over time in multiple individual stocks, it would be such a crazy combination of luck a, a, a kind of discipline that sort of goes against the kind of personality that it would take to even buy a bunch of individual stocks, it seems like. And 
a security in the decisions that you're making that over the long term index funds like there's a reason for all of that and to not be caught up in the fanfare and the excitement and just the basic envy of the people around you that you're either reading about or know that have made these fluke millions from individual stocks. Am I giving this lecture right, Sarah? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, it's easy to underestimate how difficult it is to pick a winning stock. Analyzing a company, looking at its financials and figuring out which companies are going to get more customers and be able to raise prices and be able to cut expenses and be able to make more profits in the long run is really, really difficult. And it's really, really competitive. I mean, back in the day, you were just competing with all of the wealthiest people on Wall Street, but now you're competing with all of the wealthiest people on Wall Street, plus their computers and their supercomputers and their algorithms that are able to read through financial statements in one second and make a buy-sell decision. So kind of venturing into individual stocks is adding another layer of risk. And it is super important that you appreciate that. Um, Typically, and it sounds like kind of what you did, you know, for people who have identified something that they think is an opportunity and want to give it the old college try. Yeah. Having a position in an individual stock that is smaller than and kind of outside your core basket of index funds can be a way where you can kind of meld those two things together yeah. if you feel so inclined, right? Because I also knew, like, in this text message exchange <laughs> that you have like your target date fund or your index funds, whatever they are in your retirement, right? Like the trying to hit a home run, trying to size that is important because the other super red flag is please do not borrow money to buy stocks. I could be so rich for those four weeks. It was so high. (laughs) (laughs) Debt never goes away. Asset prices fluctuate, but debt stays the same until you pay it off, right? So that... I'm thinking like as I'm reading this, that's probably the actual bigger red flag is should I borrow money to buy this stock? Yeah. And I can't think of one person where I would be like, totally, you should totally do that. Like 100% of the time, I would be like, please do not borrow money to buy stocks. It's danger layered on top of danger. Okay. It's like a force multiplier for the unknowns when you're borrowing money yes. on top of investing in individual stocks in the in the stock market. Yes. Okay. It's making it exponentially more dangerous. If you borrow $100,000 to put into stocks and you pick poorly or you just end up in a 2022 bear market that, I mean, these things happen. And now your stocks are worth fifty thousand dollars, and you still owe the hundred. What are you going to do? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. 
it's really dangerous. But what you also made me think of is you said, you know, getting to know the, the individual company's financials, their prospects to attract new customers, their prospects of making more money doing whatever they're doing, this ridiculous capitalist idea that there has to always be growth, even though that's completely not sustainable, subject for another episode. But you also can't predict a war in Ukraine that will then make there be no grain in half of the world or heating gas in right. half of the world. You can't obviously predict, a, you know, pandemic. You can't predict a lot of things that are way beyond just what the individual company's financials might be and that could affect Absolutely. entire sectors of the economy, not beyond just that one um, company. And so I'm thinking with like, we talked about in one of the bear market episodes about investing in large growth cap stocks, which I still forget what that means. <laughs> but I understand yeah. it to mean like the household names, Apple, Amazon, Google, stuff like that. Yeah, That entire sector has been hit right now. So, oh, absolutely. so even if you had bought an index fund in it, those would be similarly affected. Can you talk about that, how that's different? If I had bought an index fund that had Amazon, Google, all those big ones in it, that's now way down versus if I had bought individual shares of Apple stock. Yeah. I mean, so this is where it's kind of hit or miss, especially in a in an environment like this. If you buy a basket of stocks, and they're all, you know, maybe they're all similar, maybe they're all large companies, maybe they're all large growth companies. And in this type of macroeconomic environment, they are out of favor, they're out of style. You can imagine a time where they come back into style, right? And for most people in that space, you also kind of understand how those companies make money. And you can you can hang in there, right? Also, like if one of the companies in that basket does horrible or disappears, right. you still have other companies in the basket which should recover. Like one of the hidden benefits of a recession is that some companies get wiped away and the companies that survive now have more customers, uh, right? Because there's less competition. Okay. So if you're in a basket of companies, like in an index fund, some of those companies just don't make it, but the survivors end up stronger okay. over a long period of time, or they can end up stronger, okay. right? If you have one company that you've kind of bet the farm on, and it's the wrong one, yeah. if it goes away, like Enron, right? There is no recovery. There's no length of time that you can wait to wait for your Enron stock to come back. It's gone. It's at zero. It's bankrupt. It's gone yeah. forever. Yeah. And so that's where the basket, even if you want to be in a certain sector, you know, tech growth right now is very bad, right? This year has just been horrible. But you can probably imagine a future where it's sorted itself out and come back from the levels where it is today, Yeah. right? But picking one company in that basket is a lot trickier, right? Like what if whatever company you choose 
just isn't able to compete in whatever world pops out of this recession, right? What if that's the wrong technology or there's too much competition or they can't provide services cost effectively? Whatever it is, there's a million things. By limiting yourself to the one company of the thousands and thousands and thousands of companies in the world, you are increasing your risk just by a lot. Okay. So I keep thinking, yeah, but like Apple's never going to go anywhere. You know, they're going to be there forever. But then I'm thinking, but their growth can really, even though I don't believe in this model, it's what makes us money in if we're investing in the stock market. So even if I decide, well, Apple's not going to go away forever as a company, they could be making less money. And if I had had my money in an index fund, I could benefit from a group's growth that would be more than an individual stock. So even if they don't go away forever, even if they hold out and stick around, they might have a more protracted downtime or not bounce back as quickly as the others in their category for whatever reason. And then I'm, but I'm stuck with the one I chose instead of the group that are right. all in the same category. Right. I mean, with companies like Apple, Google, um, these are often the types of companies that people can stick with during a downturn. I mean, imagine if everybody is like, oh shit, recession's coming. I'm going to delay getting a new iPhone right. by a year. Yeah. I'm not going to I'm not gonna buy a new iPhone every cycle. I'm going to double my cycle. Yeah. Right. That has an impact on the number of phones that Apple sells and it will have an impact on the share price. Right. Um, and that is happening right now. And then think like, okay, if that is happening right now, and at the same time, a company like Exxon is just printing money by selling you something that you need every day of your life. Right. That if you own a basket of the S&P 500, as Apple is going down, Exxon is coming up and they're offsetting each other. Whereas if you just own Apple, you might be able to say like, yeah, I get it. Apple goes up and down. I love this company. I'm in it for the super long yeah. run. I'm going to gut through the downturn. And there are a lot of people who do that, right? right? Like, I don't care. I will never sell. Yeah. I don't care how long it takes. Um, but it's you have to be able to get through it, right? You have to be able to tolerate the times when whatever thing you are really attached to is not in style for some period of time. It could be a year, it could be two years, it could be five years, it could be 10 years, right? Like, do you have enough conviction at that point to hang in there while those natural right. cycles of the economy like work their way through? Right. And it just occurred to me, like the message that we keep saying, i.e. you, and I'm trying to endorse it, is don't look. Put it in an index fund and don't look. But if you're doing that for an individual stock, you kind of by de definition have to look because you've bet on that one horse. And so, of course, you're going to look because you need more information about it, whereas an index fund it will just, the set it and forget it goes through. So you can't, I'm not looking at my portfolio right now. I know everything's down. That information is not going to help me in any way. But when I look at my Airbnb one, you know, I have a lot of feelings towards you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had no idea about the animosity. Well, we're in a good phase right now because it's me. down. When it goes ba back up really high, I'll have to, we'll have to really revisit this. I, 
I didn't say you couldn't buy more now if you have the money. Yeah, but I'm then I was to... an insider. I was like behind the curtain. <laughs> it was like the only time what I'll ever it... be invited to do that, I think. Uh, what if it goes below $68? Has it gone below 68 I don't know. Look. I'm going to, Caitlin. Because I feel like there was talk at the time that it was overvalued. There was a big question mark about whether it was overvalued or not. And then it hit the market and they're like, see, it wasn't. But now? Yeah, no, it hasn't gotten that low. Okay. Again. Okay. It got to 91.41 back in June. And it's only at 96.09, but you just keep an eye on it, right? Like if it gets back down to 68, you could set a limit order Ooh. and buy it at 68. Oh, that's interesting. So I, it was a little experiment. It was like, okay, I'm not doing this as my main investment strategy. You know, it's not like I always have an extra 2,500 just sitting around, you know, looking for a job. But it felt like, okay, this is an interesting one to be part of. It's never occurred to me that I would actually sell it. I do feel like, no, it's mine now. Like, (laughs) you break it, you bought it. Like, we're in it for the long haul. And I can't tell. Is that because I still am an Airbnb host? Like, this just underlines my main point, which is we do not make sense in all of this stuff. There is some shiny object that we're attracted to. I have a mixture of envy, of like aspirational living goals, like all this stuff that's wrapped up in it that doesn't make me necessarily make good business decisions or my good right. financial totally. health decisions because like the the moment the dog daycare woman tells me that she invested in carnival like I lose hours of my life being like why am I not that smart or like all these and in the end that's wasted time like I have a strategy so that's why I always feel like I want to revisit this topic because it's so alluring. And I have to, like, yeah. I quote unquote know better. I've been taught by the best. And yet, it is very complicated. And those days where people were writing about how they bought, you know, a new truck with their Airbnb game, you know, I'm like, God, I'm doing it all wrong. There are so many opportunities to really question the most boring investment strategy that probably will win in the end if our past is any guide in the future. And we're not immune from it to continue to think that individual stocks, and I think people are more intelligent when they talk to me about individual stocks. I know I have an internal assessment that they're clever, that they're go-getters, that they're like understand the market in a way that I never will. I don't immediately label them as like ridiculous gamblers that are going to lose all their money. And I'm not saying they all are, but it's funny how I can really idealize like the kind of person that buys individual stocks and like is killing it. And that is so interesting. I do just want to point out to everyone that Caitlin ambushed me with this topic today. I had no idea this is where it was going. But I think it's fascinating because it's like everything that you are saying is true. Do you have envy? Um, sometimes, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have as much envy with individual stocks. Um, I think that like kind of going back to, I think what I see, I see the winners. 
Yeah. Right. But I also get a chance to see the losers. Yeah. In people's portfolios. Like I'll often see the stock that has gone to zero that people will just leave in there as a reminder that stocks go to zero. Yeah. Right. And so I get to see both sides of it. Right. Like if you get like a hot tip or something that um, seemed like a sure thing or something that someone just took a flyer on. Like, listen, I think this could work. Yeah. I'm going to put $5,000 in. And if it doesn't, I'm not going to die. I have the rest of my portfolio to support me. So I get to see all of those things on people's statements. So it's a little bit less of envy. Um, I know that like, I'm personally not going to be able to find the next thing, the next Apple, the next Microsoft, right? And there are other people out there looking and good luck to them. No, that makes sense to me. And I know we've talked about that before in a previous episode, how we never see the headlines of the people that like went for it and then lost all the money. We I saw the headlines of the people who, like me, had invested in the Airbnb and then like doubled overnight, like this crazy yeah. flash success. Not the ones like me that like got their hopes, you know, thought they were winning and then it came down. And now it's just kind of like an average, really no big headline piece of my investment portfolio. And yeah. so either the really bad stories or the just like, eh, it's fine. It hasn't done better than my index fund, but it hasn't like killed me either. Um, and yeah. so there's something synonymous with the individual stocks with like drama, with either the like get rich quick or the like Enron, like, you know, eviscerated. And the right. reality <laughs> is that it's somewhere in between, but the risk is huge. And I have, I think, a gendered view of it that like men have bought individual stocks and done well. And so when I hear women talking about it, I think like, oh, they're in the secret club now. Like they've really Hmm. gotten to that higher point. And it's just a ridiculous story that I have from 80s business success movies. (laughs) 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 We're very influential. Yes, I would say, yeah, yeah. I would say people talk about their winners. Yeah. They don't talk about their losers. Right. Right. And so whenever anyone has the winning story, you know, ask them if they've ever like yeah. what mistakes they've made. Right. You know, like uh, it's 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 more common, like you said, for someone to have individual stocks and they're like, fine. Yeah. Right. Like maybe they've made a little bit more than the average. Maybe they've made a little bit less than the average. Um, it's really rare to see someone who's hit a home run. Um, and it's pretty rare to see someone who's, uh, you know, where it's just been like the wrong, the exact wrong thing, uh, but those things do happen and they're the ones that do get the headlines. Most of the time you see someone's portfolio and you're like, oh, like you inherited, uh, 200 shares of Johnson and Johnson from your grandma and then you chose to keep it and okay, cool. Right. <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, it's not. It wasn't Apple. Right. It wasn't Enron. It's, it's Johnson & Johnson. Right You've received some dividends. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, okay. it's, it's fine. Right? That makes sense to me. I think this, the ideal where you don't have to think about it, and that's 
that's where I'm at. That like I, it is too emotionally wrenching for me to try to even contemplate following the stock market and having like my future be dictated by these numbers, which of course also happens when you look at your index fund portfolio. But that the idea that I would have had to choose if my retirement savings depended on my Airbnb stock, that that would have relied on me selling at this time where I was felt like it was still increasing, there's no yeah. way. There's no way I could have made that decision in an appropriate way. And I yeah. don't think anybody would have known when the peak was. No. So Sarah sent me an article yesterday called Women Globally Retire with a Quarter Less Wealth Than Men. And it was on actually Bloomberg.com. And we can put the link in the show notes. And you were talking about one of the aspects of it that they talked about was women in a higher income bracket, not negotiating to get stock options with their job. Is that correct? Yeah, I think one of the takeaways was that for women that are relatively well off, that disparity in wealth actually increases from their less wealthy peers. The difference in wealth between women and men in lower incomes is less than the difference in uh, net worth for higher income okay. men and women. Okay, so pe- and people one- with lower incomes, there's less difference between the genders uh, at lower income brackets, but in higher, men are making, are worth a lot more than women are. Right, and one of the reasons in the article was that women end up with less stock-based compensation. And can you say what stock-based compensation is? Sure. So when, you, um, when you're working at a company, uh, oftentimes people get a salary, mm-hmm. but then they also might get stock options or stock grants. That are the company, res- like if you're working at Amazon, obviously Amazon has stocks and at certain echelon of the hierarchy of employees, you might be offered to get your own shares. And like instead of money salary coming to your paycheck, they give you shares instead. Yes. And that can come in all different forms. But the idea is you get dollars, like a salary, and stock as part of your compensation. And so in the article, it talked about how this difference in stock compensation seems to be the reason women, or one of the reasons women end up with less wealth by the time they retire. Mm-hmm. And it was it was unexpected to me, right? It Like for me, I was reading that article and it just kind of brought back to the forefront of my mind something that you and I are working on and talking through and like the reason for this podcast, which is hey, over time, owning assets, and maybe those assets are stocks, owning assets creates wealth. Right. And so if you are compensated in stocks, chances are you will end up being wealthier than if you're not compensated with stocks, if you're just compensated with a salary. Okay. Right? Um, And so I just thought that that was... It was interesting, and it was kind of this direct connection 
between the wealth building power, not of necessarily just income, right? right? Not just salary, but that, hey, like stocks should be over long periods of time, wealth accumulators, right? Like wealth growers. So if you can get your hands on more stock, either by negotiating for it or working at places that provide some of their compensation in stock, you should end up wealthier over time. So what this brings up for me is that if I got hired by any of these companies, A, what world are we living in? If Anyway, I, that's not my line of work, but <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't even occur to me that that would be a bargaining point. Like I would think if there were stock options at all, that it would just be like, and this is what all new hires get. Like here it is. Like I wouldn't, it wouldn't be in my vocabulary to think of that as being a negotiation point. Whereas like, I know that salary, I mean, it's taken me many, many decades to get here, but I know that salary, I could say like, no, wait a second, I'm looking for something with this salary. But it wouldn't even occur to me, which goes back to like, A, the secrecy that is around how much people make and what their packages are and offers are, how gendered that is, that men automatically get offered more or assume that they'll negotiate. So there's a completely different um, dynamic for them getting hired because they see it as a negotiation where I think women are just like, oh, the honor, the privilege of being able to work for you is so great that I will not like <laughs> make you mad by trying to get what I'm worth. Um, and so that loss of like historical knowledge about what you can negotiate for. And then also, here's my other question, which is, it's very funny that on the one hand, we're talking all about like individual stocks are the devil. Don't do it. And then here, we're saying that like women should really have more individual stocks to build their wealth. Can you help me connect those dots? Yeah. So when typically when you get compensated with stock, it's in stock of the company that you work for. Okay. So you end up with a concentrated stock position. Right. Meaning Um, concentrated, you have a bunch of stocks from one place, which is the company that you work for. Correct. Um, So doing some planning around that is an opportunity, right? How do you take the stock compensation and decide what portion you're going to keep in that company stock, which is risky, right? Your income and your Wealth okay. is now tied Depend to this on one the company. Of company. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, like, what is the company? What are their prospects? And then, what um, plan do you have to either cap or um, uh, periodically diversify out of that one company's stock into? a more diversified basket of stocks. So what you're saying is they offer you, they say, we're going to give you a, you know, we'll pay you $100,000 a year and you can have, what is even the language they would use for your stock options? Like in in money or 25 shares of whatever? Right. It could be um, RSUs that are vested at a certain schedule. It could be a certain number of stock options at a certain... strike price. It could be the opportunity to participate in employee stock purchase oh plan. It So there are, it could be stock grants um, oh based God. on how long you work there. So there is like a long 
There's list not enough time options. in the world to understand any of the words you just said. But the basic thing is they'll have some choices and it might make sense for them to get a lower salary amount of dollars in their paycheck and get more of the stock options. But if they do that, they're not stuck with those shares necessarily. They can sell them and exchange them for other shares in a more to make a more diversified portfolio. Am I getting that right? Right. Typically, you don't have to own all of these shares forever. There's some period of time where you can sell them and take the proceeds and reinvest them into something more diversified. Like, okay, if you are working at Apple and getting compensated in Apple stock, how much Apple do you want in your portfolio? Is there a way to, if you know you're accumulating Apple stock, is there a way to adjust the rest of your portfolio to reduce the amount of Apple in the rest of your portfolio Right. because you know that you have this big Apple position over there? So there's a lot of discussion you know, that, that goes along with that. But I think that this idea of salary being one part and ownership of assets or ownership of stocks being a big part that almost always gets overlooked right by by women especially it's like okay do i you know do i have my salary can i pay my bills can i take care of the people around me am i secure do i have my emergency fund do i have like everything covered like there might be kind of just that piece of accumulating assets even when it's scary like it is right now like accumulating right. stocks over time can it be part of your compensation? If it's not part of your compensation, can it be part of your overall wealth building strategy over long periods of time? Because that's what narrows the wealth gap between men and women. Right. And we've talked about this before. We'll keep saying that. Um, The cash in your salary is not inflation proof. So you you negotiate for this great salary, but in two years, the way things are right now, that has a lot less market power. Whereas if you have stocks or you know investments, assets, those will rise with inflation. Am I eventually? That right? Eventually, Hope- like they, yeah, they're not recession. Not in twenty twenty two. No, <laughs> we're not talking short term. But like right. the cash will never recover, but the investment portfolio can. Right. I mean, it does come back to that inflation fighting power of stocks over the long run versus having either your comp or your wealth tied up in something that does not keep pace with inflation, like super safe cash and super safe assets. How do you divide you know, your, your money between those two things or among those two things? But that like even, you know, in November of 2022, the worst year in a lot of years for the stock market and the bond market and the housing market and all the markets, right? (laughs) Basically, except for oil and gas. The supermarket. The supermarket. Definitely. Yeah. Right. Everything is, you know, just not good. But if we zoom out over the long run, if we want to end up with more money, we have to keep at it. We have to keep adding assets that over long periods of time should keep pace with inflation. And that's where stocks check that box, right? Okay, right. But mostly in an index fund. (laughs) (laughs) It's the easiest 
to do it in an <laughs> index fund. Talk about. Unless you're going to learn all about how Airbnb oh my you know, God. performs during different market cycles, you know, like. It's exhausting. And I want to let you know, I forgive you for preventing me from <sighs> being the thousandaire. I get why you did it. And I also get why advising your friends is dangerous. <laughs> Because yeah. now I'm like, what else, What other yeah. shitty advice other- have I given you over, over <laughs> time? Am thing, I ruining your life? It wasn't shitty advice. It was exactly no, it was the right good. advice. And it's exactly what I should have done. Yet, it's so complicated by all the other fantasies and dreams that can run through one's head that are not based in reality, but that are based on these headlines and the what ifs. And that it's complicated to mix those up um, because the voice of reason is not always a fun one. I mean, most I often know. not, right? But well, also... I mean, hold on. I disagree because I'm going to say that I think like for all stock investors or, you know, like if you're buying a house, if you're buying stocks, whatever it is, like you have to have some level of optimism, right? Like yeah. that, like that's what the stock market is. It's like optimism, and progress harnessed, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you do have to have like a positive outlook or like the chance to do all these things that we're talking about, like grow wealth, build wealth, make a good choice. Um, maybe it doesn't have to be like hit the home run, but just like, oh, like, are we putting ourselves in a position to have this payoff? And if it doesn't, can I live with the outcome? Right. I think that's really kind of what it comes down to. And my own individual struggle, battle, individual journey, challenge of what's the right amount of aggressive in building my financial future? I can't be where I was before 10 years ago, which was completely passive. Like, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear about it. But it can't overcorrect to go elbows out and take mm. huge risks because yeah. I'm like, I'm a big girl now. I'm going to do all these. Yeah. So gauging for myself, what is the appropriate amount of risk? What is, how do I sort of manifest my new financial knowledge and confidence to do smart things that aren't super either passive or so conservative that I'm actually not benefiting from being in the market as much as I could. And that's an individual struggle, I think. Um, and yeah. stocks can bring out the like most aggressive side. And yet that's sort of the direction I want to be going towards, but that's too far. So it's also just my own figuring out how to a compensate for years of not paying attention to any of this stuff but not overdoing it and yeah. that seems like a uh that's for a lot of us at this point in our lives figuring out how to get that right yeah i mean welcome to investing where you're going to make a ton of mistakes yeah that's just like that's just what happens right or what things that feel like mistakes that with time work themselves out so there is that like there's optimism involved there's some level of faith involved but like you said like maybe the most important thing is figuring out what risks you can um that you can live with the consequences if it doesn't go the direction that you hope it goes yeah right like you know they say like you know one of the financial sayings is like hope is not a strategy Right. Right. So 
if it's like, oh, I'm going to buy this thing and hope it goes up, that could be a red flag, right? Like, oh, I'm just hoping, but I don't have any like additional knowledge or expectation that I'm making the right choice. I'm hoping it's the right choice because the guy that gave me the tip said it was a good idea. Right. But there often is like, okay, I'm taking this calculated risk. I hope there's a big payoff or I think there will be a big payoff. And then if it goes against you, I mean, can you live with it? Right. I think that's what everyone is kind of gut checking now is can you live with a 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 percent decline in something that you really believed in? And if you can live with it, then, you know, that's that's what investing is, is calibrating that through your whole entire life lifetime. Right. And so just get used to it. Right. Yeah. And. Um, continue, but don't pay attention. <laughs> um, okay, Sarah, any other last things you want to say about individual stocks or women getting more assets so that we can be as rich as men? Yeah. I mean, I think that if you don't have a better idea, just put some extra money in an index fund when the market is down and give it 10 or 20 years. If you do have what you think is a really good, brilliant, well-researched idea, I'm of the mind that there is some amount of money that some people have to take a shot, right? It makes things interesting. Sometimes it does pay off. But again, just like consider whether you can live with it if it doesn't pay off. And that you won't know when to pull the plug. Yes. And that you are like, it's easy to buy, very difficult to sell. Yeah, because you're like, the whole point of buying it is you're like, I have this fast, like, (laughs) incredible idea. And then to say bye-bye to that is also hard. Anyway, I've made the point, I believe. Okay, thank you, Sarah. Oh, this was so fun, Caitlin. Do you have any dumb questions about investing or finance? Ask us on our website, womenontheverge.com. If your partner is making you ask for money, giving you an allowance, or not letting you know about family income, this could be financial abuse. Learn more at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-SAFE. This episode was edited by our co-producer, Kelly West, and our music is by Bad Bad Hats and Devmo. I know the first thing you notice is that I'm covered in gold. The trip of the wrist, it can turn a hot bitch cold. To get what you want in life, girl, you gotta be bold. No, I'm a direct. This podcast contains general information that is not suitable for everyone. The information contained here should not be construed as personalized investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. There is no guarantee that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast will come to pass. Investing in the stock market involves gains and and losses and may not be suitable for all investors. Information presented herein is subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a solicitation to buy or sell any security.